Welcome to the first episode of Delicious History on Vacation. The first port of call, Guayaquil, Ecuador. How did some people find themselves on a slave ship one day and then become kings the next? Find out on this episode of Delicious History. Delicious History is a podcast designed to show us not just how history has affected food, but how food has affected history. For more information, you can visit us at delicioushistorypodcast.com or on our social medias at Delicious History Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Dave Militello. This week's episode has been sponsored by Reliable POD. Are you looking for some reliable POD but only can find unreliable POD? Well, first of all, let's talk about POD. What is it? For those who aren't in the biz, POD stands for print on demand. So let's think, for example, you want to make merchandise for your YouTube channel, for your podcast, or just your company in general. Traditional models require you to buy large amounts of inventory and sit on it, whether or not people actually buy it. POD, or print-on-demand, allows you to send that order to a POD company who will then make each of these products as they come in and send it out to your customers. The big problem with POD services is either they're done overseas, which means that they take a long time to arrive to your customers, or they're done in the U.S., but they're quite expensive. Reliable POD has found a way to bridge those two issues by giving you an American company that offers you print-on-demand services for a very reasonable price. And one of the great things is that Reliable POD works with most major platforms, such as Etsy and Shopify. For more information, check them out at reliablepod.com and be sure to use code DM10 for 10% off your order. In case you didn't hear the announcement video, this season of Delicious History will be done while on the road. My wife and I are going to be traveling across three continents, and of course, there'll be food-related stories along the way. Keeping in line with how food has affected history, it's incredible to see how much history you can see with your eyes that's been affected because of food. Uh, To be honest, this episode is a bit of a cheat because my wife is Ecuadorian, and we spend quite a bit of time in Ecuador. In fact, we have a house in Cuenca, Ecuador, which is up in the mountains, and this ended up being a launching point for the rest of the trip. In fact, the reason that we spent a good deal of time here before heading off to the rest of the vacation was because my nephew just graduated high school. Congratulations, Johnny. Also, my niece graduated a week after him, but we sadly were not able to make her party. But that doesn't mean we don't love you, Annalise. I actually lived here in the city of Guayaquil sometime in the past, so there really isn't too much to report for new things here, per se. But I would say that at my nephew's graduation party was a beautiful, beautiful ceremony that was at the Hilton Colon, which is one of the best hotels in the city. And just when they got to the part where they had the mother, son, daughter, father dances, there was this guy who was apparently relative of one of the students who just, well, let's say showed up in a less than sober state. Well, anyway, one thing led to another. And he stands up, starts screaming at the table about how he's no longer part of the family and something, something. And then he storms out. 
Well, my wife, she just happened to be outside and saw that he grabbed this kid by the scruff of the neck and he said something about how he was going to kill his sister or something. Thankfully, he was just some drunk guy. Nothing bad actually happened, but it was, uh, of course, quite a bit of drama. And honestly, I'd hate to be that kid if that was my graduation, though. But, you know, something that's interesting about being an outsider is how you can be in a place and look at it from a different perspective, right? So, of course, I'm an an Italian-American that came down to Ecuador later in life, so my way of looking at things is different than the average Ecuadorian. And one of the things that surprises me, not just about Ecuador, but about Latin America in general, is its diversity. So if you're from the United States, Canada, Europe, or anywhere in the Western world outside of Latin America, I want you to do something for me. I want you to think about Latinos. Well, specifically, think about a Latino in your mind. And I would bet my paycheck that you're probably thinking of someone who has black hair, dark eyes, caramelish skin, and is on the shorter side. There's also a very good chance that the facial features you're thinking of are going to be something for uh, someone who's more likely to be Mexican. But the fact is that Latin America is extremely diverse for both good and bad reasons. Well, let's talk about the good reasons. In modern society, race really isn't as important in Latin America as it is in other places. So, for example, having a mixed race relationship isn't looked down on or even really talked about compared to other parts of the world. Which is obviously a good thing for me because my wife and I are in a mixed race marriage. And as a result, you're obviously going to have children that are born with unique features as you have genetic mixes that you don't always see in other parts of the world. Some countries are known for particular types of people, such as Argentina and Chile having lighter-skinned people, versus places like Cuba and the Dominican Republic, which are known for having more darker-skinned people. But the fact is that anywhere you go in Latin America, it's extremely common to find people of all different colors but they still consider themselves Latino, or at the very least, part of the country where they're born. Okay, so, okay, time for one of my famous trademarked rants here. I don't really understand the word Latino in the sense that we're talking about here. So, originally, let's talk about the word Latino. Uh, Latino was for people who were from the region of Latinum, which was where Rome was. These people spoke Latin, and of course, they were known as Latino. But why are people in the Americas known as Latino? Well, that's a really complicated and weird story, and we could thank our good friends, the Spanish. You know, the same people that called native people in the Americas Indian and called people from South America Amazonians, despite India being on the opposite end of the world and the Amazonians being a mythical land around Greece. So, you know, real winners here when it came to naming people. Speaking of these Spanish people, throughout Latin America in the past, there's always been the idea of labeling people of different colors and ethnicities. Though how much of an effect that's had, that's been debated. I remember learning about the casta system, which is literally a caste system. And it's been proposed that that was how people of races were treated in the past. Now, before we go any further, let's talk a bit about definitions. In Latin America, there are names for people who have different racial backgrounds. So if you were a white person who was born in Europe, you were called a peninsular. 
If you had one parent that was of Spanish descent and the other was indigenous, you'd be called mestizo. If you had one parent that was of Spanish descent and the other of African descent, you'd be called mulatto. And if you had one parent that was indigenous and the other who was of African descent, you'd be called zambo. The idea of the casta system was that everybody had their place in society. In fact, there were famous casta paintings that show entire charts of where you would be depending on your lineage. The names I just mentioned are the general names used, but these casta charts had all kinds of names depending on your combination of parentage. The problem with this is that there has been evidence that depending on where you stood on these charts, you'd be treated differently. Not just in society as a whole, but even under the legal system. Generally, the people who were the highest on these charts were the pure Spanish blood, and those on the lowest were those of pure African blood. The idea of a formal caste system during the Spanish colonial rule was presented by Angel Rosenblatt and Gonzalo Beltran in the 1940s. Of course, back in those days, researchers liked to look at things very black and white. More recent research by researchers like Pilar Gonzalvo in her book La Trampa de las Castas suggested that any kind of caste system wasn't as rigid as we originally thought it had been. Regardless, though, the, the fact is that certain groups of people were marginalized in the past and to a great extent have broken through that marginalization much better than other parts of the world. But, you know, let's talk about why people were there in the first place. I mean, obviously indigenous people were there because they're indigenous to the area. Anthropologists have commonly said that the first humans to come to the Americas arrived around 13,000 years ago, though there is recent research that suggests they even arrived earlier than that. So that covers the indigenous people. Why white people came is a pretty famous story about a fellow named Christopher Columbus who sailed the ocean blue in 1492, etc., etc., of course, there were other Europeans that had reached the New World by this point, such as the Vikings about 500 years previous to that, as well as others. But it was really Columbus's arrival that set the wheels in motion. We're not going to talk about that too much since we're actually going to be covering that later on in the season. The Spanish, and frankly other colonial powers as well, didn't come to the New World to make friends, did they? They were there to make money. Of course, we're familiar with the Spanish lust for gold and silver, which was behind a lot of the famous conquistadores and their conquests. But there's only so much gold and silver that you can get at any given time, which of course is why gold and silver are so precious in the first place. Now that you've conquered all this land, what are you going to do with it besides just letting it sit there? Well, that's where the food element of our story begins. Cash crops. Cash crops are named this way to differentiate themselves from staple crops. Staple crops are the main type of crop that's grown within a civilization that's the main type of food that they eat. So this would mean wheat for Europeans, rice for East Asians, etc. These are going to be your day-to-day -day foods that are often the cheapest in a particular area because they're consumed so much. A cash crop, on the other hand, is something that's grown specifically because of the high price you get on the market. One classic example of a cash crop is sugar. Sugarcane originally came from India, but has been grown throughout the world and, of course, exported to other parts of the world since ancient times. For example, Pliny the Elder in his Natural History stated, quote, Sugar is made in Arabia as well, but Indian sugar is better. It is a kind of honey found in cane. White is gum, and it crunches between the teeth. It comes in lumps the size of a hazelnut. 
sugar is used only for medical purposes, unquote. Remember that at this time in the Mediterranean, the main sources of sweetness came from honey and fruits. Sugar was seen as a bit of an oddity as well as being exceptionally expensive because of how far away it was grown. In fact, the only place that sugar was ever grown within Europe directly was on the island of Sicily. Even so, it was still something that was extremely expensive and rare. Also, for some reason, the Romans never found any culinary use for sugar. For them, it was just medicine. That said, all of that changed after the Crusades. In fact, a lot of food stories have something to do with the Crusades because a lot of foods were forgotten in history during the Dark Ages or new foods were discovered by Crusaders in the Holy Land. That's because the Muslim world at this point was known as being both a source of a lot of exotic foods as well as the go-between and trade between the Eastern and Western world. As Crusaders rediscovered sugar for Europe, they still had the idea of sugar being used for health purposes, but also recognized that, hey, it's delicious. William of Tyre wrote that sugar was, quote, very necessary for the use and health of mankind, unquote. As another side note, I think it's kind of funny that a lot of the Crusaders had no idea how to explain what sugar was. Again, remember the vast majority of European sweetness up to this point was in the forms of syrups or fruit purees. So when Crusaders were writing about this and trying to explain it back to their families and friends, they ended up just calling it sweet salt, which is not really a bad way of explaining it, considering the context. As the 15th century comes around, the relatively small amount of sugarcane grown in Sicily, with much more coming from ports on the eastern Mediterranean, Venice actually became a major spot for sugar refining and distribution. Once Europe had an easily available form of sugar, they were hooked. As a result, sugar became more and more expensive with each passing year. I mean, this was a great boon for the Middle Eastern traders and obviously for the producers in India as well. But like with many other imported delicacies during this time, it was really only used regularly by the rich and very sparingly by the poor. But eventually, everyone was consuming as much sugar as they could in Europe. While beet sugar was developed in the 16th century, it really wasn't considered as high quality as cane sugar, and so therefore was never in as high demand. After the famous 1492 voyage to the New World, Columbus brought back news of territories that were lush and warm. Perfect for sugar growing. Rice and other crops, which were also expensive in Europe at the time, were also widely grown throughout Latin America to be sent back to the motherland for a hefty profit. By 1501, the first sugarcane crops were planted in Hispaniola and the Caribbean. From here, we start to see a few ways that sugar is grown throughout Latin America. Remember that by the 16th century, the Spanish had subdued two major empires, as well as the vast amount of land that came to be known as New Spain and Peru. New Spain covered all of the North and Central America territory, and Peru covered all of the South American Spanish territory. One of the first things that was tried was the encomienda system. This was a system where Spanish colonists were granted the right to demand labor and tribute from indigenous peoples in exchange for protection and Christian instruction. Obviously, you can't see me right now, but I'm using some pretty big air quotes at the moment. The way this basically worked was that if you conquered a swath of land, the Spanish crown allowed you to own that land and to use the people on it for labor as long as you took care of them in some way. In fact, the word encomienda means entrusting in Spanish. The indigenous peoples were allowed to live on the land they were on before as long as they gave a certain amount of crop to the landlord as a tribute and, of course, 
the landlord protecting them or giving them some other kind of service. But this eventually evolved into the repartimiento and hacienda systems, which were also based on forced labor. The problem that Spanish conquistadors faced was that the queen was very squeamish about just conquering and enslaving people that they found. Of course, she wanted the riches and power that came from these conquests, but she was always conflicted because she felt that simply enslaving people was not the Christian thing to do. So she always found a way to make a compromise. While the results of that desire was mixed at best, something that forced the hand of the Spanish was the rapid death of the indigenous peoples. According to some researchers, up to 90% of the indigenous population was wiped out by European diseases in some places. We've actually mentioned this before in previous episodes of the show. Those that didn't get sick and die, well, they were often worked to death or mistreated by their masters in a way that ended up in their dying anyway. As a result, there was a couple of things that were clear. First of all, there's always plenty of money to be made by work being done. Work the Spanish in the New World clearly didn't want to do themselves. But since they couldn't coerce or force the local people to do it anymore because there just weren't enough local people around, they had to find a new way to bring in new people. If you're looking for a quick and easy way to get people to work for you whether or not they want to, slavery is obviously going to be your best option. While slavery has been around in one form or another since the beginning of civilization in all parts of the world, this was the very beginning of the time when West Africa became a prime option for large amounts of slaves, which is exactly what the Spanish needed at that moment to continue their system. I'm not going to get too deep into the Atlantic slave trade in this episode because we're probably going to have its own foundational episode on this at some point. But cash cropping is the source of a lot of historical events, and whenever you have cash cropping, you're generally going to have slavery as its shadow. Obviously, slavery is never a good thing as it dehumanizes and takes away the rights of others. However, we do need to understand how slavery works since it varies from place to place and from time to time. That's the reason we're going to be diving into the subject quite a bit more in the future on the show. The Americas under Spanish rule weren't really a fun place for anyone unless you were Spanish. But it was especially bad for African slaves. This is because while Spanish law requires at least some kind of humanitarian treatment of the indigenous peoples, African slaves were often treated as animals or mere property. So they didn't enjoy the same types of protections. In fact, African slaves were often brought in to do the most dangerous or difficult work, such as mining. They were also brought into areas that just didn't have enough people to do the work at all. Remember that with the price of sugar and rice and other cash crops the Spanish were able to grow in abundance in the New World, the more you grew, the more you made. Period. An ironic thing about sugar consumption in particular was that the more it became available in Europe at the time, the more popular it became. Generally speaking, when you have a product with high demand and low supply, but once you start flooding in more supply, the price will typically go down. That's true eventually, but what ended up happening was that as more sugar became available in Europe, the demand grew even more, which helped to keep sugar prices high for longer than you might expect using normal economic models. This meant that the Spanish were absolutely incentivized to continue growing as much sugar and other cash crops as possible. The more the Spanish wanted to grow, the more slaves were brought in. Okay, that's the depressing part. Let's get to the fun part. So if you've listened to my show for any length of time, you know I love stories of revenge. 
One of the reasons we typically see slave drivers as being well-armed is because the number one thing they're worried about is a revolt. I mean, when you're forcing people to work without paying them, you have to know that every second of the day they're thinking of ways to take you down. This is where we get the story of Alonso de Iisacas. Alonso was originally born around 1528 on or near Cape Verde Islands in West Africa. At the time, this was also part of the Spanish Empire. The location of this area became a big hub for both commercial and slave trading. Around the time that he was about 10 years old, he was sold and brought to Seville to work as a slave in the homes of one of the richest families in the city. You know, whenever you hear these kind of stories, it always seems strange or kind of funny that Europeans don't like to bring up the idea that they had slaves on their own soil. But it happened. Because of the household he was serving, he had the advantage of learning the Spanish language, religion, traditions, and culture. As a result, he never had to work in the fields like many other African slaves had to. His owners always found him to be much more valuable as an assistant of sorts versus a common laborer. After living in Spain for a while, he was eventually brought to the Caribbean to assist his owners. Specifically, he went to the island of Santo Domingo, where he worked with the owners to establish a mercantile exchange for cured meats, olive oil, wine, and sadly, slaves as well. But at least by 1551, we have records of Alonso and his owner trading things between Panama and Lima, which is in modern-day Peru. On one fateful trip in 1553, Alonso was on a ship with his owner on a large cargo run to Lima, which included 23 slaves. The currents in the ocean were said to be exceptionally strong that day, and the ship ended up getting wrecked in San Mateo Bay, which is in current-day Esmeraldas, Ecuador. The crew, passengers, and slaves were now marooned on the coast of a very undeveloped part of the vice royalty of Peru. Okay, so here's where things start to get a little fuzzy. There are two things we know for sure. First, everyone had to travel through dense jungle to get to the closest settlement, which was Puerto Viejo. The second thing we know is that none of the Spanish made it, and only the slaves arrived. As the story goes, as I've heard from locals, this was because they took the opportunity to get their revenge on their slave masters and killed them all. Of course, there's no historical proof either way, so... So your guess is as good as mine. From that moment on, these former slaves were now trying to make the best of their circumstances. On the one hand, they had no one to take care of them, and they were far away from civilization. On the other hand, they were now free and able to live their own lives. But just because this was unsettled territory didn't mean it was empty. There were plenty of local tribes around, so they had to make their way by first making alliances with some and fighting with others. The first official leader of this new group was named Anton. He didn't last that long, as he appeared to have died in battle with some of the local tribes. Ieskas then became the official leader of the group. This ended up being the best thing for them, because, remember, he came from a background of education and culture. These were traits that greatly helped this small group to grow. In fact, he remained the leader of this group until the end of the century. Over time, this group began to grow and included other free slaves. But this also included indigenous peoples and even Europeans. In fact, a Spanish Trinitarian friar named Alonso de Espinosa served as their minister, and a Portuguese soldier named Colonso de Avila became Idiesca's chief assistant. Now, remember this ship only had male slaves, so there were no female Africans that were on the ship. So if these men wanted to have a relationship, it had to be with one of the local women. And boy, did they do that. 
There are plenty of reports of not only these former slaves marrying indigenous women, but often having polygamous relationships as well. Their children were known as Zambos and actually did pretty good for themselves. By the 1570s, this community had even began trading with the passing Spanish boats. Now, what's interesting is that this particular community was not unique. In fact, there were other maroon slave ships in the same general area that were doing the same thing by building their own communities. But Ayeska and his group would quickly gain dominance over them and started to include them into their own growing community. Being an educated man, Ijeska didn't simply want power. He saw this for the opportunity that it was. We could have people here who were formerly enslaved and be recognized by the Spanish crown as legitimate communities of freemen. Thankfully, the Spanish authorities, or the Real Audiencia, that was located in Quito, decided to make a compromise. The issue is that supplies had to be run between Panama and the city of Guayaquil, which is also in modern-day Ecuador, by land. This was a very costly and dangerous proposition. The Spanish decided that it might be a good idea to have a port between the two cities to make transportation easier. The best place was to have that port smack dab in the middle of Ijezka's territory. So not only did they recognize this community as being legitimate, but they even made Ijezka the governor and gave him the honorific title of Don Alfonso. Although this made things better, they still weren't great. Don Alonso still had to contend with rival previous ex-slave communities, as well as opportunistic Spanish traders. But because of his hard work, there was eventually a formal peace accord made with his community in the Spanish, and his family continued to govern the area for two generations. In fact, there's a painting that I'll put up on the Instagram page called Mulatos de Esmeraldas. Remember how we said that technically a mulatto was someone with a black parent and a white parent, whereas a zambo was somebody who had a black parent and an indigenous parent? Well, it seems like these words were thrown around willy-nilly back in those days. So his son, Don Francisco, and Don Francisco's two sons were visiting the Real Audiencia in Quito, and they're being betrayed here in this painting as the leaders of the coastal region of Esmeraldas. The really cool thing about this painting is what makes the people of Esmeraldas so interesting. When we think of people who were formerly slaves, such as in the U.S., they really lost their identity by the time they were freed. They were a few generations removed from their African heritage and really only learned from imitating their enslavers from a very narrow point of view. Now, the difference between those people and the people that were shipwrecked and started these communities in Esmeraldas was that they were just being transported and never even worked in the fields before. These are people who were born and raised in Africa and just recently had left. Because of that, they still carried a lot of their traditions and cultural heritage with them. Of course, living among the indigenous peoples of South America as well as around the Spaniards also played a large role in developing who they were as a people. The painting of Mulatos de Esmeraldas shows us how these people were able to negotiate a new identity by mixing everything they were and everything that they currently are. Slavery still continued under Spanish rule and eventually under the rules of Gran Colombia and then Ecuador. However, it was officially abolished by the 1850s. While there are still other communities of Afro-Ecuadorians, Esmeraldas is really the center of that cultural world. Even though politically and culturally they're still part of Ecuador as a whole, Afro-Ecuadorians contribute a lot of their own unique customs. This is especially true when it comes to the arts. For example, they're known for their marimba music and dances such as the bombo and guasá. In fact, that particular type of music was considered an intangible cultural heritage by UNESCO in 2010. 
While it's true that Esmeraldas is not the most prosperous part of Ecuador, and they still have plenty of challenges to deal with, the fact is that the founders of this region were able to go from sugar farming to governing their own province. And I think that's a pretty impressive jump. Well, that's it for Ecuador. Next week, we'll see you in Colombia. Until then, remember that we all write our own history, so make yours delicious. 